It was my daughter, Kate, who made me promise. I said, sweetheart, I'm sorry. I have got to contest the 2019 election, but I promise it'll be the last time. And I went back to her and said, okay, guess what? I think I have to run for leader again. And I have to say this, Peter, not because the party was in turmoil or I was the savior person to show up. I needed to have the credibility and the profile of leader of the Green Party in Parliament to be able to have an effective voice at the national level on issues that are critical and time is running out, and there are many of them. I'm Peter McCulley. The leader of the Green Party of Canada is an author, politician, environmentalist, activist, and lawyer. Elizabeth May, when Today in BC continues. From hidden local hotspots to outrageous wildlife rescues and trend-setting hotels, westcoasttraveler.com shares the latest travel news from your local community and beyond. Travel the spectacular west coast of the U.S. and Canada without leaving your armchair and start taking notes for your next adventure. Make your next vacation or staycation the best it can be. Visit westcoasttraveler.com. Thanks for fitting us into your busy schedule, Elizabeth. I'm really glad to be able to do this with you, Peter. Thank you. Before we sat down today, I was doing some reading and came across this. Your mother from New York was a prominent anti-nuclear activist. Now that sounds like a story in itself and perhaps gave a younger you your direction in life. Totally did. Let me clarify what nuclear was and what drew my mom into being an activist as a young housewife and mother in the 1950s was reading about nuclear weapons testing. And nuclear weapons testing was distributing a very toxic radioactive pollutant called strontium-90. And she read that it was going to cause an increase in childhood leukemia. And that grabbed her attention. And she really did an amazing job with legions of other moms in getting a nuclear test ban treaty. We still have nuclear weapons. I wish we didn't. But the nuclear weapons are no longer tested in the atmosphere. So it's like being the daughter of a family of cobblers. I'm going to know a lot about shoes. Being the daughter of Stephanie May and an activist, it was totally my direction. It was charted at about age two. Who have been your political mentors that you've looked up to along the way? Number one, I have to say, is Flora MacDonald. Although if we go back to when I was growing up in the U.S., Eugene McCarthy, but as a Cape Bretoner and being from when I was in my teens, I'd watch Flora in Parliament and it always seemed to me that she was this, maybe listeners won't know Flora the way those of us who have a Cape Breton connection remember Flora MacDonald, but she was progressive conservative and the member for Kingston and the Islands. But I remember watching on television, and there'd be Alan J. McCacken, who was our MP, we knew him well, he was liberal. But there'd always seemed to me to be, no, no disrespect meant, but it seemed to me that Flora MacDonald was surrounded by yapping dogs. And then there was this absolutely authentic, respectful, diligent, back ramrod straight, no nonsense, and just ignoring the yapping dogs. She never even stopped to say bad dog. This is a wonderful thing about being Canadian, is that you can go from watching someone on TV and admiring them, like Flora MacDonald or David Suzuki or whatever... You know what? You're going to be friends someday. If you do public work of any kind, you're all going to know each other. So I got to be a good friend of Flora McDonald's. 
She inspires me to this day. I think about Flora in Parliament, and she kept her dignity, and she kept her integrity. And those are the things that matter most to me and how I conduct myself in Parliament. And I'm emulating Flora every single day. I try. You mentioned Alan J. McKechn, who is your local MP. Wasn't he your first opponent in an election? Yeah, well, we'd hardly call him an opponent. It's like saying, I'm a wee little ant, and I intend to climb this here mountain. You don't really, the ant is not really the, but what I did, that was Alan Jay, and we became friends too, and I mean, goodness, we spoke a bit, and he spoke a lot of Gaelic. I spoke enough to keep up with him for a while. One of my most amazing experiences was being at the Broadcove Scottish concert one summer. I was already an MP, because I saw Alan Jay, and he said, I have to tell you, dear, you're a fine parliamentarian. I thought, oh, my God, from Alan Jay. But, yeah, I ran against Alan Jay McCacken in the 1980 election as an independent. I think I got 600-some votes. It was part of an effort that I helped organize to try to inject issues relating to the environment, nuclear energy, things that the other parties weren't talking about. And we started small, and it, because we tried to get one candidate in every province across the country, but we called ourselves the small, lowercase s, lowercase p, small party, and we derived all our policies from a wonderful book by a British economist named E.F. Schumacher called Small is Beautiful. And we contested the 1980 campaign to raise issues with not a thought in our minds that we could possibly get elected, but it led, coincidentally, and not my intention, but it led to the formation of the Green Party of Canada three years later. Some of the folks involved, including someone that a lot of listeners here will know, Trevor Hancock, who writes a regular column. And But Dr. Trevor Hancock went on to be the first leader of the Green Party of Canada, having worked in the little small party effort in Toronto for a candidate we had who ran there. I had a pretty good chuckle when I saw the cover of the book, Growing Up Elizabeth May. The Making of an Activist, the cover features you hugging a tree, and that's exactly what you were doing. When we first chatted many years ago, I had interviewed you for a news story when you were protesting the spraying of the spruce budworm in Nova Scotia. They were going to spray right. We got it canceled. So the spruce budworm spray program, which was approved by the Nova Scotia government, you'll remember back in the day it was Jerry Regan was premier, and a Cape Bretner, Vince McLean from Sydney, was Minister of Lands and Forests, we managed to convince them not to do it. They'd issued the permits already, and they were going to pay for it. As in most provinces, the governments can't do enough for the industries. And so, in any case, it was linked. To, while we were looking up all the evidence we could find about whether this was safe to be sprayed overhead, a researcher in Halifax linked the spraying in New Brunswick with Rise syndrome and the deaths of children from influenza that would morph into this unusual syndrome that was fatal in many cases. So we managed to get that stopped completely. That book was co-authored by your daughter, Kate. Was there anything in the book that might have been an eye-opener for you? And if so, in what way? It was written by really dear friend Sylvia Olson and my daughter, Kate Burton. What an honor to have your daughter want to write a book that's intended for young people, which is so cool. And one of my daughter's big efforts, which I don't know if it was an eye-opener, but I totally appreciated it, that Kate was the one who said to Sylvia, don't make it out like my mom's some kind of superhero. That doesn't help, and it's not true. And if we want young people 
to feel that they can be effective citizens, actually do things about their own future. You can't make out my mom like she's something special. She's ordinary. So this is what ordinary people do. So my daughter really worked hard at making sure the stories that were told were stories that people could see themselves in. What makes someone get interested in pesticides? And they told the story, which is quite true. I grew up in rural Connecticut. We had lambs and sheep and we get some that were just were really pets. They were really not part of any agricultural operation. They were pets. And we had a hobby farm more than anything. And they had a complete nervous system breakdown. They were twitching and then dying. And we had autopsies. Did they get a poison? What happened? Did they eat something toxic? And in the end, it wasn't till a couple of years later, I read Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, because this was pretty contemporaneous with when she wrote it, 62. When I read Silent Spring, I recognized the neurotoxic symptoms in sheep in the United States and the link to the use of pesticides. And I wrote the town where we lived at the time and said, in this time period, were there any insecticide spray programs carried out by the town and what was used? And sure enough, it was the kinds of things that would cause that. And we said, I wrote back to them and said, you killed our sheep. It was just like losing the family dog. You're grief-stricken, especially when you're a kid. So that did chart a course for me in being very aware of toxic chemicals and very aware of pesticides. Again, if not for that, would I, when we moved to Cape Breton Island, there's lots of things I didn't pack and remember to bring. Come on, I didn't bring my ice skates. <laughs> I thought we'd go back and collect things later. We had some misadventures, but I had two boxes of files on pesticides that I did bring. And that helped us stop budworm spraying in Cape Breton all those years later. In 1986, you were named policy advisor to the environment minister under the progressive conservatives at the time. And a few years later, took on the role of the executive director of the Sierra Club. I thought it was pretty interesting that more than 20 years ago, the Sierra Club was advocating for automakers to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The work I've done over the years, I've been blessed to have really interesting job opportunities offered to me. I've very rarely actually gone out and looked for work. (laughs) It was a funny experience. Definitely after law school, I had to look for work as an articling clerk. But in the case of going to work for the Federal Minister of Environment, because I had some public profile as a grassroots activist, all-volunteer work that stopped the budworm spraying, and then I worked as a law student in a court case against Agent Orange, I was known in the Maritimes, and this Minister of Environment, Tom McMillan, was from Prince Edward Island. One of my law school classmates was working in his office, and he was having media trouble convincing anyone that a Tory cared about the environment. And I guess they got this bright idea, why don't we convince Elizabeth to come work in the office? And I don't think they thought through that what that meant was I was actually going to work a lot, and I was going to end up being in charge of all of the issue files for the minister. Everybody else in the office dealt with partisan stuff and how to deal with the caucus. And all I did was work on getting a protocol on ozone and deal with acid rain and deal with Great Lakes. But of all the strokes of luck and weird serendipity that's ever happened to me, that was the luckiest because it was a crash course in how government works, how the Canadian political system works, how our civil service works, what the heck is a Privy Council office. And I learned it in the best of circumstances 
when we had a really good government. Mulroney's time, that era, the civil service was excellent. The people who were deputy ministers, they were the same deputy ministers who had been advising Alan J. McCagan. You had people of huge depth and commitment. It was just the best of the best civil service. We don't have it now. We have a quite eroded government in the sense of not liberal, not conservative, just how does your government work? It's not as good as it used to be. But I learned a lot through that, just what a lucky break that was. And unfortunately, I did have to quit when the minister broke the law. But these things happen. I warned him when I started, I said, you don't want me working in your office because I'm the kind of person who would quit on principle. And I really like you and I wouldn't want to have that happen. We had a good two year run before he broke the law by approving permits that hadn't gone through an environmental assessment. I don't want to castigate his character. He was told by various people, including his chief of staff, that this was perfectly okay to do. And I was the one saying, no, it's not legal. That was a sad ending. But what a very, really, for two years working for Tom McMillan, an amazing opportunity to do great things. That's when we got working with the Haida Nation to stop the logging on the southern third of what we then called the Queen Charlotte Islands, which we now know as Haida Gwaii. But creating Guayahanas National Park, which is one of the treasures of the world, on my desk as my job. Can you imagine? (laughs) What an experience. Somewhere in that timeline, Newsweek magazine names you one of the world's most influential women, along with First Lady Michelle Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. How did that make you feel? It made me feel like Newsweek magazine doesn't do good research. I couldn't figure that out. I thought, this is really flattering, but come on. My mother was on Nixon's enemies list at the point we moved to Canada, and it was really funny. Friends of hers were really upset because I thought I was a bigger enemy than Richard Nixon. How come you're on the enemies list? And my mother said, I can't account for their research. They just didn't do good research. Should have been you, not me. That's how I felt about being Newsweek's most influential women. In 2006, you were elected leader of the Green Party of Canada and 2011 elected to Parliament with a pretty healthy 46% of the vote in the BC riding of Saanich Gulf Islands. Being the only Green Party MP in the House of Commons was probably pretty daunting, but I'm guessing it gave you certain freedom that other members of Parliament might not enjoy. Peter, you're absolutely right, and very few people recognize that. They think We talked about people who are mentors. Friends with Deb Gray now lives in Vancouver. Deb Gray was really lonely as the first Reform Party MP in Parliament. People were mean to her. So I set out as I intended to go, and I thought, I don't want to be lonely in this place. Of course, the odds were against me winning here because the MP for Senate Gulf Islands had been Gary Lunn, and he was very popular, and he was also, of course, a member of Stephen Harper's cabinet. And what's the chances that the first seat that the Green Party of Canada is going to win anywhere is to unseat a sitting cabinet minister. But in any case, the voters of Saanich Gulf Islands turned out in higher numbers than usual. That's a really key point. It's not just what percent of the vote I got, but in 2011, when I was elected, we had, other than one of the small PEI writings, the highest voter turnout in Canada. We had 75% voter turnout. And then when I was reelected in 2015, it went up to over 80%. What it says to me is that when voters are engaged and believe their vote can make a difference, people turn out to vote. And when they're turned off voting and they feel as though, 
what difference does it make? So-and-so is always going to get in, that kind of thinking. And that's how it is that Ontario, in their last provincial election, almost 60% of eligible voters stayed home. And it was just, it's just tragic in a democracy when people think their vote doesn't count. And our voting system, of course, is a big part of that. I didn't end up being lonely. As I said, I drew from what Deb Gray went through. We had a big MP turnover in that election. You know, sometimes things stay more or less the same. The 2011 election, where the Conservatives got a majority of the seats for the first time and the only time, Stephen Harper held a majority of the seats, which means 100% of the power. But with 100 new people coming in, I thought, let's just have a party for the newbies. And I organized, and Green Party fortunately said, yep, we'll pay for this. I organized a little break-the-ice cocktail party. And, of course, all good organic canopies and all that. And I had my volunteers come in, and I said, when people come to the registration table, give them a name tag that's just their first name. As few clues as possible. So when you're standing there having a glass of wine in one hand and some organic mushrooms on the other hand and you're chatting you're saying hey Kathy have you found your apartment yet or did you find your office how are you do-? like the getting your feet into the job is a shared experience without partisanship and women around my age there were a lot of us elected and some were liberals some were conservatives and some were NDPers this was of course the year of Jack Layton's big orange crush in Quebec if you started chatting with someone who was under 30 you knew that was an NDP year. But there were a lot of us where there were no no real hints in your first break the ice conversation. And we stayed friends. And I kept working on, and I still do, across party lines. You can disagree on issues. I ran into yesterday, we stuck in airports all day trying to get home and ran into a friend of mine who's the, people would never believe it. She's the conservative member of parliament for Lakeland and her name is Shannon Stubbs and she's all about promoting oil and gas, but we're friends. And we had a grand time waiting around at the airport to see which of us was ever going to get out of Ottawa (laughs) when all the flights were canceled. So you don't have to be lonely if you don't insist that your only friends are the people who agree with you and that wouldn't life be boring if that's how everybody picked their friends in 2015 your daughter kate was put on the ballot in the quebec riding as the green party wanted to have representation in all quebec ridings there's never been a mother and daughter running as leader and candidate for the same party in a canadian federal election which was obviously very unique So I'm wondering what your daughter thought of the whole process and whether she would run again in the future and perhaps in your current writing whenever you decide to retire. I'm absolutely sure that if my daughter was here, she would have said no before you finished asking the question. (laughs) She's seen a lot of politics. She doesn't like it. She helped me through literally every single day of the 2008 election, every single day of 2011, every single day of 2015. She didn't peel away and say, okay, mom, you're on your own now. And of course, by that point, I married John Kidder in spring of 2019. But I'd been a single mom for virtually all of my daughter's life. And my daughter is unbelievably generous and kind and supportive. But she doesn't want a life in politics. She wants a life of being an effective citizen. And that's why she wrote the book, To Reach to a Younger Audience. But no, she's not going to be on any ballot ever again. (laughs) You mentioned John Kidder. You and John were married not that long ago, one of the founders of the BC Green Party. So if you're both on the same side of politics, what do you argue about over the supper table? Oh, (laughs) mostly things like how we stack the dishes. 
we don't argue about much. We get deeply into policy debate. Like, what is he seeing in the literature around? Because he has much more time available for reading dense and complex economic theory books. And then we come around and talk about it. Like, what does it mean? And we lately he's come across a book by an American, Martel from Harvard, and who's pointing forward the theory that the more education people have doesn't necessarily lead to them actually grasping climate science. It actually can confirm people in a different view. So we've been debating this back and forth. I still say, I've got to read this book. It's about meritocracy. So we end up debating ideas. And we wrote a book together that came out last year. It's in the Dummies series, Climate Change for Dummies. That was really hard work. And one of the reasons it was hard work was we kept coming up with new ideas, researching them. And then we had to convince the Dummies people that we could dumb down these new ideas and put them in a Dummies book. I'm really proud of that book. We don't argue about much, though. We're in agreement, uh, certainly on most things. I'm a practicing Christian, and he's a Buddhist. He's not in a religion that believes there is a God. So we don't exactly argue about it, but we don't agree. And this is one of these arguments. I say, if I'm right, and I think you're going to be very surprised after death. And if I'm wrong, I'm never going to know. So I think I've got this one. And by the way, I don't know how I'd be able to keep staying positive in the work I do if I didn't have faith. But the ethics of Buddhism and the ethics of humanism make total sense to me. I just don't know how I would personally survive if I didn't have access to prayer, if I didn't think that there's something bigger than us out there. But a lot of atheists know there's something bigger than us out there, but it may not be God. So those are the things John and I also talk about. When Today in BC continues, Elizabeth May talks about her party leadership 2.0 and how she hopes to re-energize the Green Party. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. Elizabeth, you've been elected as leader of the Green Party for a second time after retiring as leader in 2019. The past few years, there's been widely reported internal issues. How do you fix the issues and the public's perceptions of those problems? It's really important for the public, for people to know that we are a viable alternative to the other parties and that our candidates are excellent and that voting green is an important way and I think the most important way to address the climate crisis the extinction crisis. We're at a point right now of, of poly crises. We've got the war, God help us, with Putin attacking Ukraine. We're still in pandemic. You need grown-ups in the room, and you need people who are prepared to say these are difficult issues. We're not going to pretend they're easy, but we're here to do the work, and we're here to do the work with others across party lines. We need to do that. So I think that the last number of years, we talked in the last segment about my daughter. It was my daughter, Kate, who made me promise. She said, you really shouldn't be the leader for 2019. Get somebody different if you can. And it just turned out, I said, sweetheart, I'm sorry. I've got to contest the 2019 election, but I promise it'll be the last time. I went back to her and said, okay, sweetheart, guess what? I think I have to run for leader again. 
And I have to say this, Peter, not because the party was in turmoil or I was the savior person to show up. I needed to have the credibility and the profile of leader of the Green Party in Parliament to be able to have an effective voice at the national level on issues that are critical and time is running out, and there are many of them. So I said, Kate, I think I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it running with a co-leader. It's going to be a different model. We're going to have to change the Constitution. I said, I did keep my promise to you. I resigned in 2019. You resigned in 2019. Do you think you're still keeping your promise to me if you run again? Yeah, we talked about it. She really ended up liking the co-leader model. She recognized that I wasn't going to do what I'd been doing before and just do it again. She's always been worried that the pace at which I work and seven days a week and 16 hours a day forever isn't really sustainable. She just can't figure out how come I haven't figured that out yet. But we come to an agreement that this was going to be good. And it is good. Jonathan Pegno, who I didn't even know a year ago, is 32 years old and an extraordinary young man in the conflict zones of the world, working as a human rights researcher, which means there's just been like a massacre in a village. And he shows up and interviews survivors to figure out who was controlling the men with machetes and then writes up that report. He's been working for Amnesty International and most recently Human Rights Watch. So right now we're both feeling very confident. Fundraising's turning around. Members that were disenchanted are rejoining. People know they need the Green Party out there and they want us to be doing well. But if you don't see that there's a leadership team that's up to the task, it's hard to convince people especially when times are tough, to make a donation. But we're doing really well right now. And we only were elected November 19th. So I'm very optimistic about our future as a party. And you feel that interest, renewed interest, will translate at the ballot box? Absolutely. Here we are in British Columbia with spectacular work. By, and it's a completely separate party, but we adhere to the same values. There's a, a global Greens movement. We're in 80 countries around the world. So it, technically, I have the same relationship with Sonia Furstenau, leader of the British Columbia Green Party, as I would have with James Shaw, the co-leader, actually, of the New Zealand Green Party. We're very close friends. Or Lorna Slater, I just saw back from the COP15 Biodiversity Talks in Montreal. I saw a lot of Greens there, but Lorna Slater was there as Minister for Biodiversity from Scotland, co-leader of the Scottish Green Party. And Lorna, this is a hoot, Lorna's actually from Calgary, and she moved to Scotland. She's got a lot of family roots there. There's Greens all around the world. The two Green co-leaders in Germany are now in the cabinet. Minister for Economy and Energy, Robert Habeck. Minister of Foreign Affairs, Annalena Barbach, are the two co-leaders, or were in the election. They've now elected new co-leaders. So the Greens around the world and in Canada play significant roles in government, in policy, and particularly on climate policy. But it doesn't get reported that way in Canada that's okay. We'll be able to establish that we're electable. We've got to get Paul Manley reelected, and I'm a Ladysmith. Boy, I miss him. He was one of the best MPs I've ever seen. So, Paul, we know we can win in Fredericton because we already did. I'm working now with Mike Morris, who's the elected MP in Kitchener Centre, not by myself by any means, and we'll have, fingers crossed, more Green MPs before the next federal election. In other words, there's some MPs talking to us even now about whether they'd like to sit with the Green Party. And you mentioned the freedom. It's not just for me as leader. All Green MPs 
are responsible primarily to their constituents. They don't take orders from any party leader. So that's where I think for citizens across Canada, we are the most effective MPs you're ever going to get. You mentioned you had just spent some time in Montreal at the United Nations Biodiversity Conference where governments from around the world discussed a new set of goals to guide global action through to the year 2030. What are the biggest challenges and how is Canada involved in the plan moving forward? This conference was spectacular. So this was the Conference of Parties, COP15 for biodiversity. And I thought, boy, this isn't going to go well. The chair of the conference is the Minister of Environment from China, because the conference was supposed to have happened in Kunming, China, in September 2020, but then COVID. And they've been trying to have virtual conferences. They've been trying to have partial conferences. They needed a physical location. It was only six months ago that Canada said you could hold it here. Montreal stepped up. It was phenomenal that it happened at all. I thought, geez, president of the conference really is critical. A good chair can get an agreement, as we had in Paris in 2015. A bad chair can result in disaster, as we had in Copenhagen in 2009. So I didn't think the auspices were particularly good when I packed up for two weeks in Montreal. But against the odds, the world pulled together. That's 196 countries have to agree. And the range of the things we've agreed on to protect 30% of the planet's biodiversity by 2030? Wow, to cut back on pesticide use. Do you remember when we were kids, how many bugs were on the screen, on the windshield when we drove anywhere? The insect collapses are global and really worrying because they're the pollinators, particularly for bees, all of our food. So we're looking at all of this and saying, how do we preserve life on earth is what we're really talking about. And this agreement was detailed and I'll never finish the podcast if I try to start talking about it, Canada has to do a lot more. So our Minister of Environment, Stephen Gibo, who's an old friend of mine from before he was a liberal, but as minister, I've been tearing my hair out with him because his government's forcing through the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which we now own, and billions of dollars wasted in something that makes no sense and threatens our coastline. At this conference, Stephen was super effective, because he just decided to go to work to build bridges, building bridges between governments. That's where Canada always excels. Remember Lloyd Axford, they used to say soft power. We always punch above our weight. We really did at this conference. So now we have to take this agreement and say, okay, so what about Ferry Creek? What are you doing logging old growth? That's a specific concern of the world. BC as a government has to step up. We have to ask again, why are we spending public money to have a crown corporation build a pipeline to increase production. So we have a lot of work to do at home. Indigenous sovereignty is really also a big part of this agreement. So every Indigenous First Nation, Métis, Inuit, there's a lot here to pull out and say, okay, government, how are we going to live up to Indigenous ways of knowing about our relationship with the land? Municipalities are going to have to step up and say, what do we do about urban biodiversity, by the way? So I think it's challenging, but really hopeful. Elizabeth, your position on abortion has been one of pro-choice, and you get asked this every federal election. So I wanted to get your take on the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Oh, man, 
I was devastated because it was so politicized. People like Clarence Thomas, all these people that Republicans put on the Supreme Court with an ideological bias. I have to say, thank God for Canada. We don't have a court like that. Really, our Supreme Court it has been a nonpartisan place where brilliant minds apply the law. The U.S. Supreme Court has been an exercise in politics and horrific. So when Roe versus Wade was overturned, I was devastated because a woman's right to a safe and legal abortion should not be up for debate, should not be politicized. Otherwise, I remember the time when I was growing up when abortions were illegal. Women died because they were going for an illegal abortion that wasn't safe. And for family reasons, for family reasons, women's reasons are women's reasons. There was no question that to go backwards is to go back to an unacceptable time where women, if we lose our abortion rights ever, women will die. So the extraordinary thing to me was that the Republicans miscalculated. American women actually care about their rights. And so the midterms, the Republicans thought that they were going to take back their power in the Congress and Senate and women turning out to vote, younger women turning out to vote. And now Biden's administration has passed laws to try to solidify and hold on to the right to a safe and legal abortion for American women. In Canada, it's, again, non-negotiable. We don't have enough abortion access in Canada. There's clinics that get closed down, like Clinic 554 in Fredericton, New Brunswick, was there campaigning for them, trying to get the health ministers federally to make sure that in it, particularly for women in rural and remote communities, they don't really have effective abortion access in some places across Canada. And we need to make sure that women do have that access. I thought it might be fun to have some speed round questions. Sure. Thanks for your time today. What does being Canadian mean to you? Being blessed. What's your favorite book? That's impossible. I love books. Oh, man. The Poisonwood Bible. What was your first car? A 1962 Dodge Dart. It had been sitting in someone's barn in Cape Breton for quite some time. No one had driven it much, and it was like driving a boat. I think I know the answer to this, but what do you do for fun and relaxation? Cooking with my kids. Cooking or gardening? I have an apartment, a little teeny terrace. No, not much gardening in my life. Cooking. One place you've never been to that you'd like to travel to? I'd love to go to Machu Picchu, but I don't fly on vacations. Haven't done since my daughter was in grade nine and she came home from school and said, Mommy, I thought my ecological footprint score would be fantastic because we don't eat meat and we don't have a car. But guess what? That once a year vacation. So, yeah, but I would love to go to Machu Picchu. I'd like to thank Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party of Canada, for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google podcasts. Mm-hmm.